Hello again, and welcome to another Bible study about the prophet Samuel. I say the prophet, he was a prophet, a judge, and a priest. In chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, we read of his godly mother Hannah, who longed to have a child and promised to give her child to the Lord that he be brought up in the tabernacle. In chapter 2, we read about his ungodly mentors, because when he was left at the, at the tabernacle, the three priests there were not up to the mark. And in chapter 3, we read about his unexpected call. In the dawn moments, God said, Samuel, Samuel, and gave him a very solemn prophecy for Eli. Let me read to you from the very end of chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. In those couple of verses, the writer is telling us about the main ministry of Samuel, which extended from Dan in the north of the country to Beersheba in the south. And throughout his ministry, it was the word of the Lord that Samuel was delivering. Chapter 4, 5 and 6 don't mention Samuel at all. So I'm going to summarise those three chapters for you. They're all about the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark was a box. It was a golden covered box. And under the lid were kept the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. And it says in the book of Numbers... When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law. In this way, the Lord spoke to him. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God met with Moses and spoke to Moses. It was, if you like, the locus of Yahweh on the earth. He was highly respected, so much so that nobody ever saw it other than the chief priest, once a year. But it began to attract a superstitious following. So in chapter 4, the Israelites are in battle against the Philistines, and they're losing, they're losing badly, and they think, what can we do? And somebody has the bright idea, why not send for the Ark of the Covenant? If the Ark is here in the battlefield among us, God won't allow us to be defeated. How wrong they were. They were defeated and the ark was stolen by the Philistines. And in chapter 5, the ark was taken to Ashdod, one of the Philistine cities, where they put the ark into the temple of their god, Dagon. And in the morning, the following day, when they went into that temple to see if anything had happened, Dagon had fallen flat on its face, breaking off its neck and its arms from the idol structure. Then things got worse for the Philistines because plague broke out in that town. And they thought, perhaps it's something to do with the ark. Let's move it on to one of the other towns. So they moved it on to another town. And there, plague broke out as well. And then on to another town, and plague broke out yet again. They were playing past the parcel with the ark of the covenant. So the ark was causing too much trouble for the Philistines. And they thought to themselves, we need to get rid of this thing. It's nothing but a pest but we'll put Yahweh to the test. So we'll hook it up, to a, we'll put it on a cart and hook the cart up to two cows which have never been trained to work together, never been trained to plough. 
And these ploughs will both be young females who have calves. And we'll see whether these cows take the ark back to the Israelites or not. So that's what they did. What happened was the cows, having been sent off, they did take the ark back into the land of the Israelites. And it says rather touchingly, lowing as they went. In other words, their natural instinct was to go back to their calves and to care for their young, their little children. But there was something inside them that was driving them forward towards the land of Israel. When the ark arrived back in the land of Israel, at a place called Beth Shemesh, some Israelites opened the lid to see what was inside, and they died. So the people of Beth Shemesh themselves thought, oh dear, this is a, a touchy thing, I think we'd better get rid of this, let's send it somewhere else. And they sent it to Kiriath-Jerim. Let me read to you from chapter 6, verse 21. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Those 20 years were the same years that we read about earlier when Samuel was ministering the word of God from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And his ministry was successful. The people were repentant of their sins. Reading from verse 3, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. What on earth were Israelites doing with Baals and Ashtoreths in their homes to worship? This was a fertility religion involving a lot of sexual immorality. The Baal was the male form of the God and the Ashtoreth was the female form of the God. And you can imagine what was going on in the, the worship of these, of these idols. The people repented under Samuel. And then Samuel said in verse 5, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader or judge of Israel, at Mizpah. Samuel got water and he poured it out. Now water in that climate and in that culture is a precious resource. You don't waste water. And they poured out the water. He poured out the water as an act of self-denial and also as a symbol of repentance. I suppose to us we might think of the waters of baptism when symbolically we wash away our old lives and the guilt associated and seek to lead a new life. And so Samuel poured up water as a sign of the people's repentance. And then he sacrificed a lamb. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had, had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, 
that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. The Israelites were on the attack and the Israelite, the Philistines were on the attack and the Israelites were terrified. They'd been used to defeat. Even the presence of the ark hadn't saved them. What's going to happen to them now? They turned to the prophet to pray for them and he did. And so he worshipped and he prayed and he offered in sacrifice a lamb to the Lord. In Psalm 99, it says of Samuel, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. And in the book of Jeremiah, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to these people. The Old Testament writers link the name of Moses and the name of Samuel, not only as prophets, but also as men of prayer, whose prayers on behalf of the people were answered. And then we come to a stone. We've gone from water to a lamb to a stone. Verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Hadn't Hannah prayed in chapter 2, Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. Here is the Most High thundering from heaven in defence of the Israelites and scattering the Philistines. They were so terrified of what they were hearing. And to mark the occasion, Samuel set up this memorial stone. He called it Ebenezer, which is unfortunate for us because we're used to that name, aren't we, from the Christmas carol and Ebenezer Scrooge, which sort of ruins the word for us. It meant a help stone or help rock, or stone of help. It was set up rather like our war memorials. In the 1920s, all over England and Scotland and Wales, memorials were set up, pillars with names of soldiers who'd lost their lives during the, the First World War, so that years later we wouldn't forget of those sacrifices. And so Samuel set up this stone, so that years later, if a family were out on a picnic, the children might say, Mummy, Daddy, why is that stone there? And they say, oh, well, that was put there in the days of Samuel when the Lord saved us from the Philistines by thundering from heaven. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Let me read on now, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. 
But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. These verses summarise what was happening towards the end of Samuel's ministry. The Philistines have been subdued. They're not eliminated. They will come back. But for the time being, they are subdued. Some of their towns, the Israelites, have recaptured and repopulated with Israelites. And the Amorites were subdued too. Now, Amorites is another word for the Canaanites. What the author is saying is, the enemy abroad and the enemy within are subdued. The external enemy and the internal enemy are, for the time being, quiescent. Verse 15 says, Samuel, judge your leader for, for the rest of his life. And he went on circuit, mostly in the tribal areas of Benjamin. Now, earlier, he was going from Dan to Beersheba. But he's an older man now. He can't walk that far so often. So his circuit now is reduced to this area of land in the tribe of Benjamin. Gilgal, Bethel, Mizpah, Ramah. But he was still their judge. He was still their leader. And he built an altar in his hometown, the place where he had been brought up until he was sent to live with the ark in Shiloh. So during those 20 years, which are summarised for us in chapter 7, Israel is relatively repentant. The Philistines are relatively subdued, the external enemy. The Amorites, the internal enemy, also are relatively subdued and is Israel is at peace. What could possibly go wrong? Well, for that, we'll have to wait until the next session. But how can we learn from all of this? How, how can, what, what is there for our souls in these chapters that we've been looking at? The ark. It was splendid, it was beautiful, it was magnificent, it was awesome, in the real sense of that word. He was it was holy, as is God. And when the Philistines touched it, they got tumours. When the Israelites looked in the lid, they died. We need to recapture the fear of God. God is almighty. God is a righteous judge. And there come times when God decides to deal in judgment with those who have outfaced him, who breached his laws. We don't need to water down this idea of the fear of the Lord. I think if we had one glimpse of, of God, which we never will have, but if we had one glimpse of God, I think we would be terrified at his awesome power and greatness. Something else we can learn from these chapters that is the need for thorough repentance by God's people. It read that the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths and they poured out water as a sign of, of washing away their sins. Repentance. Martin, Lewis, Martin Luther said, the truest repentance is to do it no more. And unfortunately, the repentance here wasn't all that long-lasting, as we shall see. But nevertheless, at the time, they were changing their minds and they were turning back to the Lord. And Jesus' first commandment to us is to repent and to receive the kingdom of God. The Ebenezer. The importance of memorials. We have memorials. Jesus has given us one in particular, the Holy Communion service. 
He could have asked us to remember himself and his death in other ways, but he chose to tell us when we have a meal, and wine and bread were eaten at most meals in those days, when you have a meal, remember me. Remember that I died for you. Remember that like the bread which is broken, my body was broken. Like the wine which is poured out, my blood was poured out. The Holy Communion is our memorial of the person of Christ and the death of Christ. And in this chapter, we read that Samuel was a prophet for 20 years. He was for longer, but this is, these are the middle years of his ministry. During that time, those 20 years, when the ark was safely bestowed on that hill in Kiriath-Jerim being looked after, they had a prophet, they had a priest, and they had a leader or a judge. And when I say to you prophet, priest, and leader, or prophet, priest, and king, surely you think of Jesus. Jesus, who is our eternal prophet, priest, and king. The prophet who teaches us the priest who prays for us, who gave his blood in sacrifice for us, the priest who brings us to God, the king who rules our lives. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Great prophet of my God, my tongue would bless thy name. By thee the joyful news of our salvation came. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside my Saviour and my Lord, my Conqueror and my King, thy sceptre and thy sword, thy reigning grace I sing. Thine is the power. Behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. May we as believers in Jesus live as if he is our prophet, our priest and our King. God bless you all. Amen. <laughs>